You're listening to the UI podcast by the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. Uh, the topic we will delve in today uh, is how the split over climate change is entangled with broader patterns of polarization. Uh, as we all know, climate change is very complex and uh, it's a technical and scientific problem. But it is also, as it's sometimes described, a site where identities, priorities, meanings and social devices are on display. And here we can see that climate change is linked to suspicion of elites and science, uh, nationalism versus globalism, uh, masculinity norms, uh, for example. And to discuss this very interesting and also very complex topic, we have an excellent panel with us today. And I say most welcome to first here, uh, Annika Kronsell, who is professor at School of Global Studies, Gothenburg University. And uh, Daniel Pohl, who is uh, Editor-in-Chief and CEO at Expo, uh, the foundation. And also we will have in a few minutes, we will have uh, Martin Hultman, uh, Associate Professor in Science, Technology, Environmental Studies at the Department of Technology Management and Economic Economics at Schalmers. Uh, Martin is on a train and he will join us in maybe 15 minutes, but we will have agreed that we will start without him. Uh, my name is Gunilla Rajan, and I'm head of the program of global politics and security at this institute. Uh, so th what we will do today is that we will first listen to our speakers uh, and Annika will start uh, and then we will have a discussion amongst the panel and uh, then we also will open up the floor of course for a discussion. So I strongly encourage you and welcome your comments and uh, perspectives on this, uh, on this topic. Uh, so, Annika, would you like to start? Okay, so uh, the topic for today is climate change and identity politics. And the way that I, I, I have a little time here to present both my thoughts on this, uh, theoretical ideas, um, and also some of the research that I've done. It's a bit of a challenge, I'm going to, um, yeah, but I'll try. <laughs> So climate change and identity politics, for me, it's more uh, about climate governance. And I also uh, think of identity in, uh, in the terms of intersectional analysis. I'll come back to that, intersectionality, because it's a way to think about identity as less fixed, more fluid. And as you know, identity categories uh, differ. So you have uh, maybe gender and race, which is kind of... Uh, have more of a permanence, but if you look at age, you look at profession or economic status, that is much more fluid in different ways. Uh, anyway, I'll return to that. But I need to do make a short historical reflection on climate change as a governance issue and just point out a few things. Uh, initially, and I would say for quite a long time up until, I don't know, maybe... Well, in the early 2000s, maybe this changed, but prior to that, it was mainly uh, about science, about natural science. It was meteorolog meteorologists, the climate scientists, earth system sciences that talked about this as a global issues in these kind of um, visualizations, we can say. Um, so that's how it was approached. And... Uh, 
very little was said about the human impact or about behavior, people, and so forth. And we can say, for example, uh, you see a picture here, an illustration of geological eras. And we are now, uh, and this is mainly the, again, earth system sciences that have argue that we're now in something called the Anthropocene. I'm sure you've heard about this concept, that we're now in a new, um, in a new era, uh, which is beyond the Holocene. We flourished in the Holocene, and now we made, uh, as humans, such an impact on the Earth that we can talk about geological consequences, they argue. Uh, so they are saying that humans matter, but I would say that they are uh, very wrong in many aspects of that because it's too universalizing, too generalizing to talk about humans in, the, in this context. They matter, people, groups, behavior, choices matter too, as does climate science, but we know that how it matters in the kind of human context or for humans, uh, it's about really deep injustices. Uh, so there are injustices regarding the responsibilities for climate change. Uh, so our affluence in the north in some way was dependent on uh, exploiting the resources and uh, particular fossil fuel burning. So the responsibilities are deeply unjust the effects of climate change are also deeply unjust, that it affects, uh, for example, we can say maybe more vulnerable people, also in the south, uh, maybe more than uh, us in the north. Uh, it is, there are injustices regarding the resources that we can use and we are avail uh, that are available, for example, for climate adaptation. There are deep injustices in terms of knowledge, what kind of knowledge gets to dominate in the climate governance debate, for example. And finally, there are deep injustices in the issue of representation. That is, who gets to decide about these issues? And then I don't only mean the global uh, climate agreements, but all the way when it trickles down even to local level, I will have examples of that. But we can say these deep injustices have been largely ignored. And jumping into one specific example that I have from a study that I did with Gunhilde Magnusdottir, the, uh, the data is from 2012, we uh, decided uh, that we would look at climate governance in Scandinavia from the perspective of gender. So we highlighted gender in the study. But uh, what we noted uh, was that there was, we could say, a fairly high gender equal representation. And you can see this, the top is uh, the, the men and the dark is the women. So you can see the, these are different agencies that work on on climate change and are irresponsible for those areas. Um, but we saw there was a fairly high gender equal representation, sometimes an over-representation, if we are thinking 40-60 to be some kind of idea of what's equal. 
And there was also, we could say, then a critical mass of women in this field. But when we looked uh, into documents, to strategies, and even did some interviews, we found that there was really no evidence of gender awareness. Um, there was really little evidence of, of thinking about injustices, or even actually behaviors, or yeah, anything that had to do with people, really, was very much downplayed or, or even invisible. So why? Well, our project didn't take us further than to say a few things. We one of the things that came out was that it was about ignorance, in a sense, or we could say lack of knowledge about these conditions. But then we also kind of had to speculate a little bit, and we thought maybe it could have to do with the interest of the elite decision makers not to highlight these issues, and we'll come back to why that might be. Or, and it's probably for us the most likely explanation, that this uh, is more complicated and there are uh, embedded power relations and norms in these institutions that we didn't see. Uh, so that was one uh, example of how this has been ignored. Uh, I said to you that I'm interested in studying identities, that uh, is the title of, the, of this seminar, but I like to do it through intersectionality as an uh, analytical lens on power. Uh, this is a critique, uh, it's, it's a, a critical perspective, so you can critique the power relations in climate governance. And it's a, a, a way to ask questions, kind of like a methodology even, uh, about power relations. And uh, what interests me here uh, particularly is the relational um, thinking around power, that it's a relation. Uh, and we can focus both on privilege and exclusion or marginalization, and we can see how they relate. And uh, as we have developed intersectionality, it's not only about individual lives, but social practices, institutional arrangements, and norms as well. And uh, intersectionality comes from a place, so I just want to say a few words where that comes from. It's, it's, it's a politics. One thing, it's a politics. So it comes from uh, a critique of feminism. So it comes from a feminist theory and women's studies, we can say, uh, where the, uh, a critique of white feminism emerged from um, anti-racist and post-colonial movements and thinking. And we also see a parallel on ecofeminist and an, uh, critical animal studies debate on these issues that uh, um, have, it's on the political. We see a picture here of Audrey Lord, very important. Uh, she was a, um, a, a black feminist or black woman. Uh, and so we see how gender and race comes in as a power relation, and we can also maybe, I don't know about her economic status, but we could imagine there was a class dis distinction too. And she was very concerned about this fact that if you focus on one single parameter. So, comes from politics, but I do it more as analytics, right? So it's an analytical framework for, for me, and, and it's, the focus is on difference and differences rather than identity as, as given. 
but it's really important to note that the idea is that power is interlinked and reinforced that way. So this is kind of uh, the important aspects of it. So, what needs to be done to curb climate change? Well, uh, there are of course many things, but to mi mitigate uh, climate change, we need to reduce carbon emissions uh, through many things, but uh, uh, change transport patterns is one aspect. Reduce uh, emissions from the energy res intense resource industry, which is a large global emitter. emitter. Uh, we need to change lifestyle, land use patterns, etc., etc. But uh, I've worked mainly on the two top areas myself, so I'll, I'll give some examples from that. But that's not all we need. I, I also think we need new thinking, visions and alternatives, even uh, technical innovations and social innovations, possibly. And, uh, and I also argue that it's, it's really perhaps not a win-win. Everything is perhaps not a win-win. But there will also be conflicts that could emerge. And an intersectional perspective allows us to kind of see this and, and maybe be more prepared or, or see where we need to make compensations. We can come back to that theme later. So I'm going to make an example of an um, intersectional dimension or how you can do an intersectional analysis and what happens to this. So, Transport is a very important area to reduce emissions in, right? Because you have CO2 emissions from cars. So if we go to some, this is a project that I uh, work with here, Lena Hiselius and Lena uh, Smidfeld-Rusquist and Christian Dumain. Uh, and this is actually from one separate study that they do with, where they have some numbers that I can use here. But they just looked at... Uh, car kilometers, the ones that have the most car kilometers. And the, yeah, well, it was more of a range, but the fewest car kilometers. So I've picked out the two, right? So if we look at them in terms of who they are, we can see the intersectional categories at work here, because the ones that emit, uh, or sorry, that drive the most car kilometers is a man, um, it's middle-aged, so we got the age, uh, parameter, living in rural areas, so we have place. Gender, age, and place. The fewest car kilometers is a woman, younger, uh, living in urban areas, with also with low income. So we got four gender, or sorry, four intersectional categories that interact here. So, yeah, okay. Another kind of research that we've looked at and integrated here is the thumbs up and the thumbs down which represents uh, the views, uh, so it's more about attitudes. Uh, so while the other behavior attitudes uh, is the thumbs up or thumbs down, and it shows that <clears throat> women, uh, younger, living in urban areas, low income, are more um, apt to change their behavior. They're more open to legislation relating to the environment and to climate. Whereas the top, uh, the many car kilometers, is much more negative towards uh, making changes, introducing taxes, or whatever it is. 
So their attitudes are more down and the other one's up. And this is, of course, a problem uh, in many ways. But one of the problems is if we, on top of that, juxtapose uh, representation. And we see that uh, in decision-making bodies and planning bodies around these issues, uh, there is a dominance of men. Not necessarily living in rural areas, but um, we've done a, a study. We just published uh, two days ago, we got it published, where we look at municipalities in Sweden, all the municipalities in Sweden, uh, and we look particularly at the transport or relevant committees all over the country then, right? And it's uh, very male-dominated. So it's about uh, average 27% women only. Uh, and uh, in some municipalities, there's 100% male dominance. So an example. I'll move on. Uh, another example, example is from uh, other types of research that I do. Uh, and uh, we need innovation, I said. I argued that we need new alternatives, new visions, and possibly also innovations. But in the, uh, one area that I've studied is energy-intensive resource industries, steel, mine, pulp and paper, cement, uh, these industries, which uh, pollute very much. Uh, and we, when you looked at it, when we studied these industries, we saw that they were perceived as very old-fashioned. They're very male-dominated, in part possibly related to the fact that the science and technology uh, field is very male-dominated. So engineering knowledge is also predominant in these industries. At the same time as it's uh, sometimes it's local, it's also very globally connected to the market. So it's kind of placed in an interesting uh, position. But this is, of course, also recognized in the industries that there is this problem as they're trying to um, do their best, maybe, even to, to uh, reduce CO2 emissions. But they have very difficulty in recruiting, right? So the, to, to recruit diverse, diversely is very difficult for this industry, in part because of the way that they, they look. Uh, Another field that we're just uh, looking at is green innovations and patents, and this is in a Nordic project. And we see that it's a, sm a smaller group of highly educated, technically educated, risk-taking men, white men too, uh, to 90% <clears throat> that are working in this particular uh, field that we're, we're studying, or my colleagues are studying. But when we look at uh, patents uh, to women innovators, it's very low. So there is only, um, this goes for Europe, but Finland and Denmark about 13%, in Sweden 9% of the patents, gr green or other, uh, are given to women innovators. And this is despite that we have uh, in the academia around 25% women. So if we're looking for innovation, this is what we're getting at this point. Is it enough? Maybe, but uh, it surely is a, a something that we could uh, discuss. Um, so, intersectional analysis of climate change governance suggests that we understand then 
power as relational, as categories of difference, um, <clears throat> but also that we recognize how intersectional power not only relates to groups in society, but also to governance, to policy and institutions. Um, <clears throat> and I think we could work with insights to question pri privilege then and to uh, increase inclusion because the way that I said before, that it might bring in also alternative knowledges, alternative visions, and ways of thinking that might be needed in this time. Uh, so thank you. Uh, hi, I have no slides, but I, I stand here anyway. Makes me feel a little bit more important. Um, thank you for inviting me. I am not an expert in anything that has to do with climate change. So honestly, there was uh, quite complicated to kind of find the right terms, <laughs> what to call things. Uh, I'm an expert in uh, what you might call organized racism, far-right extremism, and how that that political movement and ideas are threatening our democracy. Uh, and uh, in many ways, the far right uh, and the far right rise in the Western world during the last decades is the most successful identity politics project that we've seen. So uh, my idea here is to try to explain and kind of paint a broad picture of how that is affecting uh, the issue of climate change as well. The 15th of March this year, uh, the 28-year-old New Zealander Brenton Tarrant stepped into the local mosque in Christchurch, New Zealand. Heavily armed, he attacked the members of the congregation. 51 people were killed in the terror attack that shocked the world. This attack was, well, it kind of followed a pattern of previous similar attacks. Uh, a single perpetrator, uh, educated and boosted in a kind of international, digital, far-right community. A young white man uh, filled with hate against minorities and our modern society. In many ways, another version of Anders Bering Breivik or uh, Peter Mangs in Malmö. But in Brenton Terrence's manifesto, there was one thing that stood out that we haven't really seen in the manifestos of the prior killers. It's clear that Brenton Terrence was inspired by key ideologists of the far right. It's all about the birth rates, he claimed. Uh, inspired by the narrative of the so-called great replacement, the idea of a kind of secret plan to replace white people with people from Africa and, and the Middle East, uh, which is run by, uh, by the political elites uh, and orchestrated through migration in many ways. 
So that was not a new thing. So that was kind of the ordinary narrative that you see in this kind of manifestos. But he also claimed uh, and described himself as an environmentalist. So I usually don't do this, but I think it's, it could be interesting in, in, in this in this room today to actually quote parts of this manifesto. So Brenton Tarrant, this mass killer, writes, there is no conservatism without nature. There is no nationalism without, without environmentalism. The natural environment of our lands shaped us just as we shaped it. We were born from our lands and our own culture was molded by these lands. The protection and preservation of these lands is of the same importance as the protection and preservation of our own ideals and beliefs. And you might add, our people. So during the last years, we have come to understand that the far right in many ways are a political enemy for everyone who wants to save the planet. I think Donald Trump might be the best example. Uh, and the drivers of the far right is, as suggested in, in the headline for this roundtable discussion, connected to identity politics. But to fully understand the threat from the far right, we have to understand the complexity of this political movement and tradition. So the majority of the far right spectra denies climate change today. And one interesting question is, of course, why? Um, the sim most simple answer is that they are supported by voters that don't, that are filled with distrust. Distrust against science, against media, and that the probability for them to actually trust what politicians are claiming about climate change or saying or showing or proving about climate change that they will believe it is very low. But I think the image that you showed, Annika, is quite important. This image where the slide where we saw the kind of kilometers and who is who 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 drives the most kilometers. That the, the kind of that is the far right voter. There is all political far right parties has their own tradition and their own kind of history. But in this context, uh, the broad kind of pragmatic nationalistic party that we have in Sweden, the Sweden Democrats, is a very interesting examples, example. So in 1995, the Sweden Democrats in the early years described themselves as an ecological party. So why? Because when the green movement kind of started up, it was an anti-establishment movement. So if you wanted to be anti-establishment, as the far right always want to be, you had to be ecological. Today, it's almost impossible for a political party like the Sweden Democrats to take that kind of position because the voters 
don't want it. So in many ways, the, the big kind of the big parties around Europe is has to adapt to their voters. And I would say that that is mainly the driving force of many of the stands that the far right is taking on climate change. And to be able to do that, they have a secret tool that can always be used. And that is their uh, ability of constructing conspiracy narratives. They know that their voters and they are kind of built in a, into a system of disbelief and distrust. So constructing conspiracy theories is a natural way of, uh, of orientate in the political landscape. And I would say that that is the main driving force and the mechanism of why we now see almost every far-right, right-wing populist party taking a stand against climate change, because they have to. They will lose their voters, and they will lose their support if they don't. And there is no tradition also in these parties in general to, to criticize the kind of basic of our economical system. That's a blind spot for these political parties. Their way of understanding society, understanding conflicts, doesn't have to do with the economical system at all. So in their point of view, in their, in their way of looking at society, the political elite has nothing to do with the economical elite. So in many ways, these parties are following their voters. But there is also this other trend that Brenton Tarrant is a part of. In more radical groups and amongst more radical thinkers that might not be that depended on voters and big, massive support, parts and fractions of the far right has rediscovered the origins of national socialism and, and fascism where you find eco-fascism. Which is, in a, very, in a very simplistic kind of uh, way of describing it, a political tradition that goes back to the roots of fascism and national socialism. Uh, that partly, I would say, it's more mostly known because it was part, it's kind of parts of the Hitler regime, not, not the whole part, not the whole regime. The Hitler Nationalist, National Socialist Party was a party for kind of every kind of far-right fraction that ever existed. But you could, you could can find it there. And it was kind of connected, the idea of blood and, blood and soil, which was the basic fundament of, of National Socialism, to ideas of animal protection, for example. We all see in the pictures of Hitler being very nice to animals. Uh, it also comes from an idea to create a political ideology that kind of goes between socialism and capitalism. So in this tradition, it's, it's natural to criticize 
uh, mass consumption. It's natural to criticize uh, the economical system, which makes it kind of easy to jump on uh, the environmentalist train. And the idea is also based on traditionalism and hierarchies. But it's never about saving the planet. So it's about creating uh, a space for your own people where you can live in peace, totally disconnected to black people or brown people or anyone that you would argue doesn't have a place in your land. Uh, and the idea that you in that place should be kind of connected to the ground that you are standing on as well, which means that you have to take care of it. They don't care. So Bangladesh could be a dump. And what happens in, in Amazonas isn't important. I think for the most for most people who deals with climate change understands that this is a kind of planet issue. But in their way of looking at it, in their way of looking at life uh, and politics, everything is about segregating people, ideas, uh, and civilizations from each other. And in their worldview, they almost kind of separates climate as well. So we should have a clean climate in our country, in our place, in our village, or wherever you want to construct this community, this white community. So there are two big political trends, global political trends at the moment. Two political movements that has a momentum. And one is the Green Movement, which is a global movement uh, that are basically trying to do what we can to save the planet. And the other big trend is this wave of conservatism and far-right ideas. I would argue that we haven't really seen the consequences of this yet. We haven't really seen the big, big clash. I think that if you are a person that deals with climate change or any other kind of topic connected to that, you have to learn your new political enemy, and that is the far right. And it's not that simple. You, you shouldn't do the mistake to, to think that everyone is like Donald Trump. There will come a time, and we already see it uh, inside the far Front National, in the former Front National in France, for example, which now are changing their, their politis, policies totally and transforming them to an ecological party, which now will try to, to win support amongst those, all of those people in society that feel afraid, worried, uh, nervous about climate change, but offering them their alternative solution to this question. So the question is not only about convincing people that climate change is a fact anymore. 
It's about actually offering an alternative and how to solve it and how to deal with it. And you have to do that at the same time. Uh, and as I said, I think we are just in the beginning of this. And during the coming years, you will see the far right partly, sometimes rapidly, sometimes not at all, change their take on climate change. Thank you. First of all, thank you for uh, bringing uh, together this seminar. Um, one of the questions that the organizers uh, sent around in preparation for this uh, event was that um, how uh, important is this issue? I would say that this is the issue. We have known about climate change, the scientific evidence for around 40 years, like solid evidence of the uh, <coughs> urgency, the importance to deal with this, and also in some sense what is needed to be done. It has been on the global agenda for 30 years as an issue to deal with. It has been on the national political agenda, also around 30 years. The window of opportunity of actually acting with this knowledge is closing very, very fast, extremely fast, extremely fast. At the same time, we have right-wing politicians, as well as fossil fuel industry, bedfellows together and trying to do everything they can for us to keep on destroying the planet. This is the issue. And thank you for bringing this seminar together to discuss this. So I'm invited here to be the expert that actually brings together the gender uh, issues and the environmental studies uh, and uh, understanding and studies of uh, the far right and the environmental politics at the moment. So, uh, sorry for this picture in the, in the middle. Uh, it's going to come uh, later on. But my interest for this issue uh, started when I, together with a colleague of Jonas Almsel, looked into deep into the... Um, climate change debate in Sweden from 2006 to 2009. And what we saw there was the embryo or the beginning of um, counter science uh, organizing around climate change denial arguments in Sweden. What we saw there uh, when the climate change was on the agenda uh, the last time, as much as it is today, was that a certain group of men with uh, had had influential uh, positions within industry and academia uh, organized around and was uh, spreading ideas of climate change denial from the US in which they had been prominent for a couple of years back. But we 
thought that this was so interesting and, and it, we were puzzled about the fact that this group was very homogeneous. It was elderly men, as said, elderly men who had been a very strong position, an influential position in the, what, the industrial modern society. So the industrial modern society um, in, the in the 20th century, uh, that is kind of large-scale industries, uh, think about nature as only as a resource for human economic growth, and uh, doesn't really care that much about the, the waste, either it goes to the atmosphere or it goes to the lakes. Uh, understand the planet as um, a, a very, uh, that can take a lot of um, hits, so to speak. Uh, they are uh, not that aware of the risks, as Annika also uh, talked about in, in her presentation. Um, uh, it's a kind of idea that the environment um, doesn't, isn't able to be harmed that much. And this is ideas and values that climate science very much is opposed to. Because climate science tells us that the Earth and the, the ecological systems, they are fragile. We are affecting it and we are doing that with this industrial modern logic in which we are putting waste into the atmosphere in form of greenhouse gases uh, and lakes and the nature. So this was my starting point, this article, the Green Fatwa, Climate Change as uh, Opposition to Industrial Masculinity. And we have developed that recently in an anthology uh, in which we discuss about this industrial breadwinner masculinities, climate change, and understanding this white male effect of climate change denial. White male effect is something that research has been studying in various types of sectors and industries, and which is a way to describe that white males se seems to have this idea that they can, they can take risks and that that's part of what they do. And um, that makes consequences also for themselves because uh, they are also killed in, in work-related accidents and they um, are killed in, in when they do risk sports, for example. But it seems that this idea of being at the same time at the top of uh, the societal gender system, it also gives these men a, a kind of understanding of themselves as as not vulnerable, and that also plays out towards the, the planet and, this, and the climate. And <coughs> what we saw there in um, beginning around 2008, 2009, was the spread of a couple of uh, conspiracy theories. So the title of our paper, the Green Fatwa, um, was this idea that a, a couple of um, uh, authors and, and men at that time uh, had the idea that the, um, the climate change research uh, was seen as a green fatwa towards the industrial modern society. And uh, this was then taken up and, and in when the Sweden Democrats came into the Swedish parliament 2010, they were approached and they themselves approached 
the Stockholm Initiative, which is a group of uh, climate change deniers in Sweden. And uh, they met, they had conversations. Uh, people from Stockholm Initiative read the Sweden Democrats' um, energy and environmental uh, policies, and they exchanged ideas. And this paper, in this chapter about the far right and the environment, is following that trajectory. In 2013, uh, Josef Fransson, uh, the energy and environmental spokesperson for Sweden Democrats at that time, was the first um, uh, person uh, representing a, a political party in Sweden talking about and spreading climate change ide uh, ideas in the Swedish parliament. He said, for example, that uh, researchers are only in it for the money and uh, there's no science behind it. It's only uh, their interests of, of uh, getting a good pay. He also said that the, the Swedish agriculture, the Minister of Agriculture was all uh, lobbied and all taken over by vegans. Uh, <coughs> I've also studied this overlap of values in between right-wing nationalism, uh, well, as I call it, and uh, climate change denialism and uh, gender issues, not least in connection to masculinities. In a study in Norway, this is a study of um, of Gallup data uh, for Norway, which is a follow-up of a study in, done in, in uh, the US. And also here we can see that men with uh, conservative values and also uh, anti-immigrant values, they also tend to uh, bring up climate change denial arguments and they, they tend not to take climate science for real. From this, I also want to go to the bigger picture and um, talk a bit about uh, why is it, is it so that um, the far-right or right-wing nationalist political parties today bring in um, climate change denial arguments and do spread them. So in our paper, that we focused on Sweden Democrats, but also brought in uh, research from uh, political parties in Europe, we see that they use a couple of arguments um, that is more important than others. As Daniel brought up, the anti-establishment argument is very prominent. And that has also of lately been connected to a lots of conspiracy theories. So the last one that is uh, circulating that I saw this morning is Greta Thunberg and, and George Soros. So that connection is now a big meme uh, and it's a, it seems to be a, an image that um, is totally fake but it is and it is actually also said that it is fake for, for uh, by the the, peop the person who has done it, but it is spread as it would be a truth. And this is something that we see in a PhD project now uh, that I'm supervising. So I am the 
research leader of a center for studying climate change denial in uh, at Chalmers in Gothenburg. And we have five people uh, employed. And the bigger issue that we are thinking about is that how can we have had the knowledge about climate change for so long and not been doing anything about it? And we focus on three aspects there. So we focus on uh, extractive industries, the influence of that. Um, and we focus on think tanks and their influence. And then the connection to right-wing nationalism. Because those three, um, uh, those th three um, empirical um, um, sections has been um, uh, exposed in previous research to influence the uh, construction and the spread of climate change denial. Okay, but back to the conspiracy theories. Uh, so one of, of the PhD students, he's focusing on the um, uh, uh, the um, hate and the um, conspiracy theories spread and connected to Greta Thunberg. So this is one of the ways that this is done, to connect Greta Thunberg to um, uh, supposedly have been paid off and been a puppet of, of um, economic interest. And in this case, of course, this fits very well also into the far-right image, uh, since George Soros has been um, a target of this type of campaigns in, in all over the world. Um, so that's one of the ways in which this overlap, the conspiracy theories. And the other one, um, and, and that is connected to this anti-establishment rhetoric. Another one is ethno-nationalism. So um, uh, climate change denial and far-right uh, or right-wing nationalism is also connected to the idea that um, certain countries and certain people have already done their part and are already doing well within the climate change politics. And this is brought up by the Sweden Democrats, for example, saying that Sweden is such a small country, we have such a small emissions globally, and uh, Swedes, we are so good at uh, environmental technology, so we don't have to do anything at home. And this is, as you all know, in very much in conflict with the high amount of um, CO2 emissions per person that every Swede's got. We in with consumption that's almost 10 tons, and uh, that is not what we need to be down to if we're going to take this seriously. We need to go down to 1.5. So this is an ethno-nationalist argumentations that they are using. Um, then it's another important aspect also. I think that we sometimes forget, but it this connection to industrial modern nostalgia. So um, this nostalgia of the Sweden's 1950s, 1960s is an important image for these type of, of political parties. And uh, they also kind of connect this to industrial modern society. And when then the climate science tells us that, okay, that was also a period in which we started to use fossil fuels, um, 
in larger, and we put in place the car automobile systems, um, and later on we began to travel by, by airplane. So the industrial modern society and infrastructures actually needs to be really rebuilt uh, and, and, and changed very dramatically. But this is, doesn't really fit into the far rights and the, and the right-wing nationalist ideas of this period as something that, that was really uh, an, an image uh, that they are longing for. So those three aspects we have found in our research, specifically focused on, on Swedish Democrats, that's been really important. Uh, I also want to uh, add to the bigger pictures a bit what Daniel brought up um, uh, about the, the new trend that we are seeing, not only uh, far-right political parties and uh, right-wing nationalist parties uh, taking climate change denialism on board, um, but also that we see a trend of um, what you call eco-terrorists or eco-fascists uh, that are actually legitimizing their white supremacy um, ideologies uh, via ideas of, of saving the planet. And I would say, I would actually bring the history a bit further back than you did, Daniel, because I think that this in many ways ties into a national romanticism, uh, this idea of uh, that was prominent in the late 19th centuries and beginning of 20th centuries, and in where we also these kind of national parks were established. Um, this type of uh, specific national uh, landscapes were really prominent at this time. And of course that also played into um, a hierarchy of landscapes and also a hierarchy of, of people at that time. So that was very closely connected. So this type of overpopulation arguments, I think you didn't mention there, because, but the Christchurch terrorists also used the overpopulation argument and, and uh, that has very uh, long historical roots and it is used to legitimize um, uh, um, these type of terrorist acts, especially against Muslims, because then the argument goes that the Muslims are the ones that are giving birth to too many children and we need to get rid of them, that we need to keep our race, the white race, uh, because otherwise we get flooded. So that is what we see also at the same time as we see that climate change denial has been uh, brought up and it been a very core of right-wing nationalism at the time. Uh, finally, um, I would also like us to think about this issue a bit broader also to connect it to to other societal changes that has been happening um, I think this is this is important I think that one um, aspect we need to take into account is how these ideas are nowadays spread on digital media and through social media um, so um, 
we saw in Sweden that the uh, newspapers um, almost um, didn't at all bring up climate change denial ideas and didn't spread them from around 2011 to 2000 and, and uh, yeah. uh, to 2016-17. Uh, but what we instead saw was that the rise of of uh, right-wing nationalist owned or sponsored or ideologically influenced uh, digital media like Samnit uh, and uh, Sveb TV, uh, they instead brought in these type of, type of ideas. And that has been used and that has been um, also financed, uh, which is what I want to end with also that the longer history of climate change denial is connected to uh, fossil fuel industries, their own research and realization in the end of the 1980s, that if they would take their own science for real, produced within these fossil fuel industries, like ExxonMobil, for example, if they would take that for real, they needed to change the business model totally but they didn't. Instead, they started to fund through Heartland Institute and other think tanks, climate contrarian science. And there, we actually find the roots to the problems that we are discussing today. Thank you. So thank you very much for these really interesting and uh, presentations that have been giving a much deeper understanding of a very complex um, and important issue. Um, I mean, I would like to hear a bit about if you have any reflection on each other's presentations. You've been sort of hinting towards that, but um, that would be uh, very, very interesting. Who would like to start? Uh, very short reflection and and maybe it would be interesting to hear your thoughts about that, Martin. But history shows us when that when far-right parties or fascist parties come to power or are trying to come to power, one of their first allies historically has always been big industrial companies. Uh, uh, you saw it in, in, in Germany, you saw it in Italy uh, during Mussolini's time. You can see the kind of same pattern here in Sweden. The first kind of allies that the Sweden Democrats got was uh, big companies that started kind of this, br broke the uh, isolation and started to have discussions with the Sweden Democrats. So, just a thought is that, I mean, is it seems like there is a connection here, and, and, and is, is that connection, uh, well, the question might be that since there is this tradition of connection, maybe there is a ground for these kind of ideas to spread even faster. So the relationship between the far right 
and 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 big uh, companies is is that they tend to have a lot of th interests together and this might be maybe the most important at the moment have you ever thought of that or is that just a coincidence um I think that the most important research uh, on that issue is done in the U.S. and uh, here, there, they can very much show through research by Riley Dunlap and uh, uh, Justin Farrell and Rob Brule and uh, Oreskes, the historical uh, historian, for example, that instead of what you apply, uh, say that the, when the far right comes into power, they get support by the, the large corporations. Uh, it's the rev reversed order. So the fossil fuel industry. Uh, we we need if we're going to go back to the 1980s, um, the climate change science wasn't um, a, like a political issue or com political conflict as it is now. Um, so, yeah, you could have Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher, and Michael Gorbachev to talk about climate change science. And um, you, in Sweden, you could have Gunnar Hökmark, for example, from, from um, the Conservatives to talk about that. Um, and um, we had the carbon tax in Sweden in 1989. Um, and uh, it was a consensus um, among the whole political spectrum, that this was actually a global issue that we need to need to deal with. And the scientists were trusted in many ways. Uh, but, as I said, uh, it very much uh, confronted the fossil fuel industry and their businesses. And it is shown by the historical research in US uh, very much that they then started think tanks and started to pay off contrarian scientists and then later on it influenced the Republican Party there. Um, so George Bush was a bit like the, the second, was a bit like oh it's, it's, it's an issue that we need to deal with but I don't want to be part of in international negotiations. He had like uh, technical solutions instead that they proposed. Um, but they took it for real. But from the Tea Party movement in the US, uh, that influenced Republicans as well, and further on, uh, all, almost all Republican uh, candidates to president needed to say that they are mm. against climate science. So I think we see the reverse order here, that this is actually um, a political polarization created by an industry that has been confronted um, for the business model and, and tried to do everything to save it. Yeah? Hmm? Okay. I want to just add a few points to this excellent uh, talks by Daniel and, uh, and Martin. Um, and, uh, on the um, uh, far-right ideas or, um, yeah, these far-right ideas that we see expressed, like you're talking about Christchurch and this uh, extreme extremism, and um, um, <clears throat> and Martin speaks about the climate deniers. I I want to uh, just add, uh, particular to the right uh, nationalism, that there is, of course, 
something we need to pay attention to here, that we have a very strong uh, misogynist um, aspect to it. Uh, that is um, an idea uh, very that that uh, women should be controlled in this, um, in a, you know, in every aspect. Uh, men are entitled to women's um, bodies, <laughs> women's work, and everything, and they control them with uh, abortion laws. And you can see how, in populist or more uh, in countries where you have populist uh, movements becoming strong, there's also always a discussion about uh, abortion, controlling women's bodies and blood lines and so forth. So this is well known. So I think we need to point to that. But um, rather than just focusing on these climate deniers, I, I, I would like to, to raise the issue also about the system, the kind of power system we're in. Uh, and for feminists, you call it either, uh, if you want to be nice, you call it like a gender power system. Uh, you can also call it patriarchy. I don't know, that's more provocative. But I feel that there's something here about men's, well, there's something about men's place in patriarchy. Whether they are climate uh, right-wing deniers, maybe they're more extreme, but I think there's something here about entitlement that is interesting to explore. Uh, entitlement, we know from, let's say, the Me Too movement, I think it was so clear about how uh, the entitlement to women's appearance, women's bodies was questioned there, right? Because it wasn't like, well, men can't whistle anymore down the street or just touch them whenever they want. It seems to me that this issue of entitlement comes in also in, in the way that the thoughts around how we can use nature's resources, how we can just, you know, spread all the pollution out and around. There's this kind of entitlement. And I, I think I... I also see it, although I haven't really done research on this, on the lifestyle issue, because we are entitled. It was Bush that said, don't question the American lifestyle. I, I think he said that, right? This idea that we're entitled to this lifestyle. I've worked my whole life. I want to have a fast car now when I'm retiring, and, you know, why should I rent, for example? Oh, no, you don't say rent car. Lease a car, yeah, or, yeah, rent a car. So there's this idea of entitlement, too, which I think is really s important to think about. This is my addition. Daniel, do you have anything to add to this discussion, or do you want me to jump in with a question? Yeah, I, I, I would just like to say that I totally agree with Annika, and I think that is that is the kind of background engine to to the both the far right the rise of far right populist parties and the wave of conservatism the fact that white men feel that their their privilege is partly taken away from them um, I'm, I was a bit interesting to discuss uh, knowledge and knowledge production and science, which is sort of the backbone of, of the question uh, as well. And um, because we see like climate change has always depended on, on science and scientific knowledge. Um, it's not a very concrete question, but it's more about reflections on what kind of, do we see like uh, a 
producing a production of, of counter knowledge uh, in, in by the far right, for instance. Um, I think it also ties uh, a bit to what you said about landscapes earlier on in history and how we created this uh, the nature reserves uh, and uh, questions about traditional knowledge and uh, more sort of modern knowledge. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that and how it sort of how, how, how scientific arguments are used to either promote the consensus of climate change or sort of counter-argue towards that consensus? Um, so I'm not, I'm not an expert in, in how the kind of climate change denial, that, that deniers construct their arguments and in what extent that is based on so-called science. But what I do know and what we do know from studies of supporters of the far right is that giving them a more knowledge about climate change will not change anything at all, because basically because they don't trust. So they don't trust the people who gives them the knowledge. So it's not a, it's not a question of lack of knowledge. It's not, if, you, if, if I have something that I want to show you, that is proven. If you don't trust me, I can give that to you 1,000 times and you will still not believe it because it's not about the facts, it's about the ones who are giving the facts to you. And I think that is a misunderstanding sometimes. Uh, and we have a, a growing distrust, not in whole society, but parts of society, uh, which goes along a lot of lines. One is what we what we spoke about here just before about white men don't feel that kind of they're losing their position in society so why should they trust the people who are challenging challenging them uh, they don't trust polit and one of one of the reasons is of course that some people don't trust politicians and the system because the politicians and the system hasn't really made their lives better. Uh, so why should I trust them now when they come with this new facts, which might be uh, not new, but new to them. So I think more uh, facts is not the question. The question is more like who is giving the facts, I think, and who are the uh, presenters of that. One, one key conflict here is, I think, uh, center against the periphery. So it's not only... So, so the, the strongholds of the far right is in the periphery. Uh, White-dominated periphery, where you don't trust the center. And today I would argue that uh, the representatives of those who say that there is urgence in saving the planet are, are in the center of politics or in, in, in the big cities, in the urban areas, uh, living uh, or at least people tend to look at them as, uh, as members of a global world. And in general, you don't trust them because you have learned from experiences in your life that they don't care about your life. 
and there hasn't been any kind of true political reforms to make your life better. And that has created this distrust, and from that distrust you can partly see uh, climate denial growing. Great question, Gunilla. This was actually where I kind of started to become more interested in climate change and denial because my one of my scholarly expertise is in what's called science and technology studies. And that's a um, long tradition of trying to understand how science comes about and how science is uh, validated and how we can understand that science is also a part of, of society. And um, what was really uh, stood out in the analysis that we did in 2006-2009 when we saw the first um, acorns of, of climate change denialism in Sweden was that they who um, talked against climate science uh, then wasn't against science as such. They were, many of them were old professors, many of them were really skilled in, in scientific methods, but they used contrarian science. They used uh, science that was produced uh, uh, by scientists, mainly from the US, who was financed by think tanks who had got their money from the fossil fuel industry. And I think this is one of the really big misconceptions about climate change denial is that it uh, is that all of them are anti-science. It's not the case, but it's they do trust another type another type of science that is not created and and not validated in the scientific society as whole, but comes from particular sources. Um, so I think that this knowledge and science issue is important. We need to, it is needed to dwell a bit deeper into, so not to just ignore them, because that was actually the case in Sweden among natural scientists and climate scientists for, and, and very many environmental uh, spokespersons in the, in the public realm in Sweden. And they said that, okay, no, Science tells us that we know about the, the climate crisis, so we don't need to take care of them. We, we, don't, we can ignore them. They don't have... This. So, so and making that type of argument doesn't really show how much influence they have and what type of sources they have for their, for their arguments. So I think it's a very valid question and important to dwell deep into. Okay. On knowledge... Um well, I work with more with what I say climate institutions. In, in a current uh, project, we're looking um, we're looking at those um, agencies uh, that I listed earlier in one of my slides, like uh, um, the Energy Agency, the Transport Agency, uh, the Nature Conservation Agency. How uh, and for them, of course, they respect. I think that overall, they are not climate. That's not. They're not climate deniers there. We don't have that problem, I, I don't think. But what we do see, however, is that uh, professions also have knowledges, right? So they have kind of a um, few 
we could even see a few biases in their knowledge. Is there, uh, so if, if we see that engineers are dominating a, a sector, then it's engineering uh, knowledge that comes out. And, and, and perhaps we don't see uh, what an anthropologist would see, right? So it's also about what do you include and who do you employ, actually. And we, uh, of course, there's a, a lot of economists, <laughs> and then we get ec economic models. Um, so this is really an important issue. And for the transport research that I've worked with and my colleagues, they always talk to me about how planning models in transportation are um, very gendered in terms of how they, what they have norms for when they plan things. Uh, and it's, it seems to stick, uh, like they have the commuting mail as the norm for how they're gonna look at traffic flows. And it's very hard to, even if you critique that, it seems to be something maybe in their transport engineering education or transport economics education. So it's even in the professional knowledge that we're um, seeing things that are important to uh, make visible. Produce this instead. <laughs> thank you. Uh, thank you very much. I think uh, I mean this. Uh, the, the aspects of knowledge and science is uh, probably a roundtable that we will do uh, next year. Uh, so uh, because it's uh, so interested in many aspects of it. Well, and I would like to say thank you for coming, and I'm very happy that we had the opportunity to arrange this panel and that you could come here. And it's been very, very interesting to to listen to the discussion and to your questions. I'm sorry, I mean, we had quite a lot of time, but still it's such a topic that raises many questions and issues. So, well, I hope we could continue in another forum. Thank you. Find us on www.ui.sc. We are also on Facebook and on Twitter with UI Sweden. And we're also on YouTube where you can watch our seminars and interviews.